Good morning. How is everyone? Solid. Um, my name is Dodds. Welcome to uh, Sojourn Heights. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, last week, we began a new series in the book of Job. And Job, uh, a book part of the Old Testament, which is the portion of the Bible uh, that was written before Jesus. And last week, we talked about this particular question that humanity has been asking ever since we could, why do good things happen to bad people, and why do bad things happen to good people? Why isn't there a quid pro quo, tit for tat code that the universe adheres to? And Brandon said, like Brandon said last week, the deeper question there is this, is God just in a world of injustice? So we're going to spend our time really in this wrestle. Nothing is more certain than this. You are going to suffer. We are going to suffer. Our world is going to suffer. Those we know are going to suffer. Destruction, pain, loss, anxiety, depression, disaster, disease, all of it is either happening it's happened or it's on its way. C.S. Lewis, who was a British writer and theologian, lost his wife to bone cancer. And um, he chronicled his grief in a book called A Grief Observed. Essentially, it was his journal entries in the months just following her death. And why I think this is important this morning is just that we're looking at Job, this ancient theologian, and we're watching him suffer and seeing him give word to that suffering and that grief. And I just think it, it, might be, it might be good to prime a little bit here with a modern theologian in his grief. So I'm just going to read a few excerpts from his book, five small excerpts. But this is, this is what C.S. Lewis had to say in the wake of his grief. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. At times it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me and I find it hard to take in what anyone says. An odd byproduct of my loss is that I'm aware of being an embarrassment to everyone I meet at work, at the club, in the street, I see people as they approach me trying to make up their minds whether they'll say something about it or not. I hate it if they do and if they don't. To some, I'm worse than an embarrassment. I am a death's head. Perhaps the bereaved ought to be isolated in special settlements like lepers. Who still thinks that there is some device, if only he could find it, which will make pain not to be pain. It doesn't matter, it doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist's chair or let your hands lie in your lap. The drill drills on. Brush your teeth. Um, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. 
but so this is what God is really like. Talk to me about the truth of religion, and I'll gladly listen. Talk to me about the duty of religion, and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect that you don't understand. When suffering hits, we don't have to reach far. We don't have to reach at all to ask the question, why? It is ingrained in us. It is an instinctual response. In our tears, in our surprise, in our confusion, in our pain, we ask, why? And there's something in us that just says it shouldn't be like this. Victor Hugo who was a French poet and novelist, wrote, who wrote Les Mis, once said, Tomorrow, if all literature was to be destroyed and it was left to me to retain one work only, I should save Job. Job doesn't shy away from the suffering in the world. It, it deals with, with, with life and looks at life with an honesty, a philosophy, an intelligence, and an emotion but before we get into the text and really jump into the depth of what's going on here, we should set some expectation. This text today, nine, Job 9 and 10, it is not going to wrap up suffering in, in a bow. We're, we're going to sit in some heaviness. We're going to sit in the heaviness of grief and injustice and the complexity of suffering and circumstances. And that's just going to sit on us. And just like grief... It's not going to be neat and tidy. It's not going to, what kind of grief, any of us who are grieving and suffering, is it ever organized? We're going to talk, we're going to go on this emotional journey with Job in the text. The text is going to take us by the hand, and we're going to go. So let's jump in. So we looked at one and two, we looked at chapters one and two last week. So today we're jumping in eight chapters later. And at this point, Job has lost everything. His money, his possessions, his children, his livestock, everything. Even the respect of his wife and even his health. He's covered in head to toe in boils and uh, sores. He's shaved his head. He's torn his clothes. He's cut his own skin. He's in a heap covered in ashes. And his three friends hear about what's happened to him. And, and they come, it says, to give him sympathy and comfort. And for seven days they mourn with him in silence. But as Job begins to grieve and lament and give his grief words, his friends can't keep silent. So while our text is Job 9 and 10, we're actually going to consider what's just been said in chapter 8 by the second friend. Bildad is his name. Please don't name your son Bildad, Okay. I think that's actually why this is in the Bible. Don't do this. <laughs> Job's response to his suffering at this point has been wholly, it really has been wholly about grief. I mean, some of the things that he said, he said, I, I feel like I'm buried under all the sand in the known ocean. I wish I were dead. At least, at least if I were dead, the pain would end and I could finally rest. I'm, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm completely innocent. And as a despairing man, the least I could hope for, the least I could hope for, would just be some kindness from my friends. And it's to this that, that Bildad responds. So let's pick up in chapter 8. 
first thing out of Bildad's mouth. How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? In other words, Job, in all this grieving, you're just a big windbag full of hot air. It's pretty sweet, you know? It's like, aw, Bildad, I didn't get you anything. Um, Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you'll seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Bildad is the traditional moralist. He is the churchgoer with the right answers. Job, God is just, and he runs everything in the universe according to a strict code of justice. If your children rebelled against God, then turning them over to death was the just thing to do, which is totally what you should say to someone who's just lost all 10 of their children, right? Just keep that in the back pocket for comfort. Um, He says, Job, God always acts according to what's just and right. So here's the deal. If you're suffering, which you are, it's your fault. It's not God's. But don't worry. There's a way to fix it. Go to God. Plead for mercy. And if you're good, if you're good and you're pure and you're right, he will have no choice but to welcome you back and to give you back everything that you lost, to restore everything. Maybe that's a lot how a lot of us think functionally. I think it is. We're experiencing pain, loss, grief, and down deep in just our, kind of just our core, there is this, what did I do wrong? I thought I was being good. Is God mad at me? Have I not prayed enough or done enough good? Maybe for those of you who are living in in chronic physical pain or, or in a depression that just has not let up for years and you hear someone say to you, well, that's because you don't have enough faith. If you ask God the right way, if you ask God the right way, use the right words and the right tone at the right time with the right amount of faith, then he'll take all of this back. In other words, to make life better, we've got to start working harder. We've got to work harder. We've got to be better. And then God will be pleased with us, and he'll take away our pain and give us what we want. He'll give us back even what we've lost. Job felt that too. He was confused and hurt too. What have I done? Why is this happening? God, explain it to me. Bildad leaves Job with this. this is his, these are his parting words. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. God is bound by his code of justice, Job. Blameless people are welcomed Evil people are rejected. Sinless people are given joy. 
evil people are covered in shame. That's the way the world works, Job. Don't you know that? I thought you knew that. Bildad gives an easy, uncomplicated, unengaging religious answer. He's trying to get us to see. He's trying to get us and Job to believe that this is the way that God operates. There's a formula, and we know what it is. Be good, and God has to bless you. Be evil, and God has no choice but to punish you. And that's what brings us to Job's response. Let's look at chapter 9 in the beginning. Truly, I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He's wise in heart, mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against God and succeeded? So Job says, Bildad, you're right. I know you're right. Blameless people, only blameless people can stand before God. But here's my tension and my question. How can I, blameless as I am, finite, how can I be assured of justice before a God whose ways I can't even fathom If I wanted to pull him into court and argue my case, a thousand times out of a thousand, I would lose. He is the wisest and strongest being in existence. Does anyone get to tell him how it goes or how it should be? The things that God does, they are too amazing to understand. He moves the earth. He created water. If he doesn't want the sun to rise, he says, don't rise, and it doesn't. Who could ever say to him, what are you doing? And it's over these verses that Job comes to share all that he's going through. It's a really, it's a true lament and conversation because like grief, it just kind of, it meanders up and down, left and right. And it's a soul sharing in chapter 9 with Bildad and then in chapter 10 with God. So let's verse 11. It's starting to get, his grief is becoming a little bit more desperate. First off, it was kind of sadness, and then as friends begin to speak, it's just growing kind of desperation and bitterness. Verse 11. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Bildad, when, when God draws near, I can't even see him. When he leaves, I, I don't even necessarily feel him leave. I, I don't even notice him. He takes things away, and no one can change his mind. C.S. Lewis, again in a grief observed, described it this way. He said, this is what he experienced. When I turn to him with gratitude and praise, when you turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, 
welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. Maybe this is where you are today. Maybe this is where you were this year. You're in such desperate need, and yet all you have known from God is silence. And you think that God has abandoned you, or maybe even a little bit worse, that God is still there, and he's just chosen not to speak with you. And all you can think is, why won't you talk to me? You know, I struggle, um, I struggle with anxiety on a daily basis. I, I mean, Kimberly and I have talked about it before. Sometimes it feels like we're living with like an extra roommate, but like a bad roommate that like doesn't pay rent and like leaves half-eaten emotional bowls of cereal all over the house. I don't know if that image translates to you, but in my head, that's what it looks like. In the sink, in the sink. How many times? But there are times where I really do, I feel like I'm kind of coming undone at the seams. It can happen for the smallest thing, the largest thing, nothing at all. And all I want for him to do is to draw near and speak to me, but maybe he doesn't. And that's what grief feels like. God, where are you? I feel completely detached from you. So let's continue. Job 9, 22 through 24. It is all one. It's getting even a little bit worse now. It is all one. Therefore I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it's not he, who then is it? Grief coupled with bitterness leads to cynicism. This is, this is Job at his most cynical. Bildad, it's all the same. It's all one. There's no difference in treatment. It seems like whether we're good or we're bad, we just all meet the same end. Life is a crapshoot. It's random. Maybe that resonates with you. You think that God doesn't run the universe on any kind of justice. In fact, you may think that God doesn't care either way. He's so awful because he's just indifferent. But here's what we know that Job and Bildad don't know. If you remember last week when we looked at Job 1 and 2, Job's suffering is not God's idea. It's not his idea. It's Satan's idea. God most certainly allows Satan to cause the suffering, but he's always limiting the suffering in a way that Satan can't fully carry out his plan to ruin Job. 
You can take all of his possessions. You can take everything away from him. You can't take away his health. Don't touch him. Okay, touch him, but you can't kill him. See, this is a God who is in complete control. This is not, the relationship between God and Satan is not like the emperor is God and Vader is Satan. That's not the relationship. Well done, Lord. It's not like that. This is God in control and allowing, allowing, not not enjoying at all. When God created the world, there was no suffering of any kind. It was only after sin entered into the world that suffering, and, that suffering entered existence. So God has always been repurposing suffering in the world. And this is why the moralistic answer from Bildad just fails. It fails for Job, and it fails for us. Just like Brandon said last week, this isn't a new idea. This is still something that we live with today. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. You reap what you sow. And it's why all of our attempts at moralistic living to secure God's favor absolutely fail. Let's talk about this for one second. The quid pro approach to God is an attempt to take control when what happens we can't understand. Be good and God will bless you. Do you know that that actually puts God in our debt? It puts us in control of him. It turns him into a vending machine. And it also attempts to answer, and this is so important, it attempts to answer what is vastly complex and unfathomable because God isn't a force like karma or a simple formula where we cross multiply and solve for X. That's not who God is. The world is complex. Our lives are complex. The universe is complex. We want the simple answer because we want to take control. But probably the worst thing about moralism is that it makes true love impossible. Because of our aim to be blameless is so that God will reward us, then we will never truly love him. We will love the payout. Moralism makes users of God, not lovers. And if God is about anything, he is about making lovers. True lovers love even when things are bleak and terrible. How many Warriors fans did, did they, did, how many fans did the Warriors gain in their playoff run? How many people are still holding on? How many people are still holding on to the Astros? How many people are now on the bandwagon for the Astros? See, true love, true love, even when things are bleak and terrible, that's what God wants so that you'll love him, not his stuff, not the payout. 
Job enters, or excuse me, ends the chapter in chapter 10 this way, and I'll paraphrase because of time. But he speaks directly to God. Now, Job most certainly is holding on to grace in all of this. Remember his words from chapter 1. Naked I came, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's not saying, all this is great. I'm just translating this as awesome overall. No, it was all grace anyway. It was all grace anyway. But that does not cause him to be anything but honest. So let me read this. Let's see, let's see what resonates with us here. He speaks to God directly. I hate my life. So I'm going to be honest with you and share all the bitterness that is in me. Does it give you joy to favor evil and to hate your creation? Do you just try to find where I'm guilty, even if I'm not guilty at all? You made me. You put skin on my bones. You connected the muscle to the sinew, the sinew and tendons to the bones. You gave me life and love, and you cared for me. But you knew your intention for me all along. I know now that my suffering was intended for my undoing. I am hopeless and so filled with anger and shame in my suffering that I can't even look at you. I can't even lift up my head. And even if I could, you would come after me the way that a lion comes after a gazelle. You would just multiply my pain. Why did you even let me be born? Isn't life already hard enough as it is? Isn't being alive just hard enough? Stop coming after me and let me have a little joy before I die. How many of us are saying this in our hearts this morning? How many of us have the courage, maybe even the honesty, to say this this morning? Do you know that you have the freedom to share yourself at this level with God? Because God, God doesn't want your social avatar. He doesn't want our projection. He wants the real you, the real me, the real us. The unpolished you. Bildad says, Job, the blameless can be right with God, the evil cannot. Job says, Bildad, you're right, but even in my innocence, I can't reach God in order to plead my cause. I have no ability to stand before him and argue my case. God is not just. So in an attempt to reason his way out of despair, he resorts to the world of the courtroom. So let's look back at verse 32 of chapter 9. For he is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. In other words, if only there was a way that God could be a man 
and then we could get into the courtroom together. I could answer his accusations. But alas, there, <laughs> there is no mediator who could come and stand between the two of us. God could never understand the pain and anguish of man, of me. And here's where we have, this is crucial because this is where we have the resource, this is where we have the reality that Job did not know about yet. And we find it in 1 Timothy 2 and Romans 8. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all by sending his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful human flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do you see what he's saying? On the cross, Jesus the blameless person was rejected. And we, the evil people, were welcomed. The sinless man was covered in shame so that we, the sinful people, could be clothed in righteousness. In Christ, Bildad's moralistic explanation of God's justice is completely undone. God completely flips it upside down. On the cross, Jesus became the completely forsaken Job, longing to be free of the silence that he experienced when the Father turned away from him, the one who became completely alone, completely alone, the completely alone, blameless man the world turned it's back on. On the cross, God's justice was carried out in the greatest injustice ever known. And this is the moralistic flip. As blameless met suffering, Jesus had become for us the suffering, sympathizing high priest. What does this mean for us right now, Sojourn? What does this mean for us in the, in the wake of this reality, knowing that suffering is happening, it's coming, it's here, it's part of our lives? Because of Jesus, I just want to say a few things as we close. Because of Jesus, we're free to grieve without looking for pat answers. Bildad's encouragement was a pat answer. Live a good life, get good stuff from God. That's a pat answer. Pat answers always, are always easy with a hint of truth, but they ignore complexity. They never engage the person who is suffering. Everything happens for a reason. True, but that doesn't engage the person. It doesn't engage complexity. It's too easy. You reap what you sow. Life is a crapshoot. Or even at, at real times, he's sovereign. Right. 
but you're still not hearing me. That's what Job was always saying to his friends. You're right, but you're not hearing me. For many of us, we don't know where to file terrible suffering and loss. So either we avoid people in their suffering or we say something easy to take control because deep suffering reminds us of our frailty and inability. But because of what God has done through his son, we're now freed up to grieve with one another without having any answers for why. Can I tell you that the greatest thing that people did for me after my dad died was just to sit with me. Just to sit with me. Instead of answers, they put an arm on my shoulder and they closed their mouths. Like Job's friends in the beginning, we can show up with one another in this community and those outside of this church body. We can show up to grieve by just being and saying, I don't know, but I'm here. I don't know why, but I'm here. I don't know why this has happened, but I'm here. Number two, because of Jesus, our parishes can be places where we grieve and offer comfort. Because in Job, we see that God gives room for us to be who we are, where we are. Job's complaints are vigorous and bitter, but he brings them to his friends and to God himself. Job even says in chapter 9, we didn't read this, but he says in chapter 9, if I just put on a face and I just kind of play the part of everything's good and it's going to be okay and I just need to keep my chin up, then I, I won't be able to handle any suffering of any kind. May our parishes be places where real suffering and grief can take place as we seek to grow in sympathy and in empathy. And do you know that God actually does grieve over your suffering? He grieves over our suffering? He's not, he is not a linebacker coach. You're going to thank me next week when your thighs and your calves are huge. That's not, that's not what he puts us through. He's not saying, trust me, you're going to really enjoy this later. No, he actually grieves that suffering is a part of our lives. I'm sorry, I don't know where that came from. That was totally out of the book. <laughs> I don't know why he's from Amarillo. <laughs> um, but, f but finally, for really, for those of us who want to know why, why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? And I'll assume that's all of us. What if, what if, it would be, would it be cruel of God to give us the full answer now of what we're waiting for? Perhaps you want, you want that baby. You want your baby and you haven't been able to have a baby yet. Or you've had chronic back pain and it has not let go. Or you've been wondering when your anxiety and fear will end 
What if God came to you in a vision, in a whisper, and just said, don't worry. Give me three years. I'll take it all away. I'll give you your baby. I'll take away your back pain. I'll erase that anxiety. Would our hope not become just three years? And not him. And not him. Wouldn't that become our hope? God is about the pursuit of making us genuine lovers of him, not lovers of improved circumstances. Sojourn, we have a wonderful book here that shows us how we can suffer well, honestly, and together so that a watching world might see here's, here's a group of people who grieve injustice but who are not undone by injustice, who don't become moralists or cynics but lovers of God. Let's pray. Father, creator of life, creator of light, you allowed your son to be condemned as evil, as wicked, as sinful. And in laying upon him all our burden of sin, you rejected a blameless man and welcomed a sinful one instead. Father, in this life, we will have trouble we will have suffering, we will grieve, we will know deep loss, we will witness deep loss. Father, in your grace, through your Holy Spirit, will you so apply the work and truth of Jesus to our hearts and minds that we might be a holy people who acknowledge suffering and yet hold on to the reality that you are that you are. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.